0: Well, yes, we're doing church this morning, and probably important to have some sense of context just in case uh, some need it. So we are a community that celebrates together. We party pretty well and uh, actually have become sort of known for it, uh, celebrating the goodness of God together and encouraging each other. And uh, we get to f- experience mourning together and see if we can do that as biblically as we can celebrate because just, just in case you haven't heard some shocking news, uh, about three or four weeks ago, we tragically lost a, a special student that had just graduated from college uh, through a drowning. He was quite a fisherman, Alex Robbins, <laughs> little and a giant at the same time. Uh, and that, that pretty much knocked us off our feet. And then we hardly got back on our feet. And, uh, and then Friday we got news that we lost two more young men who were central to our youth ministry um, who were in their college careers. Uh, Tristan Witty and, and J.J. Atkinson were driving together to go sleep in the desert with some buddies uh, in uh, Joshua Tree, and through nothing that they did wrong, they were in a freak accident, and both were taken from us. Now, you add that to the things all of us are experiencing with news of this reckless, crazy, confusing, evil stuff that's going on all over the world, and just take your breath away a little bit. And that's the context for our, uh, for our fellowship, not to mention, because we're not aware of all of them, the equal struggles we're all dealing with, regardless of how well we know people who... Um, who are no longer with us. So that's, if, that's the context for us today. And that's part of the deal, isn't it? We do church together. We walk together. We carry each other together. And I, we're in this book of Colossians, working through the book of Colossians. And we're going to dig into another piece, the next piece of Colossians today. And wouldn't you know it, it's relevant. Because it always is. But I would like to start today's study of Colossians by reading from three non-Colossians text. I'm not going to ask you to open up and read along. I'd rather have you just listen uh, to these things. The first is from Ecclesiastes 3. Many of us were first introduced to this text by an old group called the birds. Remember that? If you're as old as me, you remember. There is a time for everything. It was the birds, wasn't it? Yeah, thank you. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. This is Solomon writing from his wisdom. Can you just imagine him taking a breath, considering his life, gathering his children around an overstuffed chair, or pillow in his case, and he says, listen here, here's some of the stuff I've learned. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. There's a time to love, even a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. It reminds us that we live life and we don't get to be immune to any of those aspects of life. There are these seasons that we encounter together in life. Job has become a special book to me. Especially one verse. Now, I'm going to rip it out of context, but try to be faithful to the context. I'm not going to read much of what's around it. But Job is in conversation after tough things have happened, well, devastating things have happened to him in his life. And the, theo- the prevailing theology in the time that he, we read this was this. We know how your relationship with God is going precisely by how things are going in life. If you're wealthy, it means you're not sinning and God's favoring you. If things go poorly for you, that's because somewhere in your life is some hidden sin and the terrible decisions you make and God's punishing you, you, and it was rigidly assumed that that was the case. Job actually defeats that doctrine. It's one of the things it does. But Job is in the middle of a conversation with his friends who don't know enough to recognize that when they're with him when he's suffering, it's a time to be silent. And they keep giving all kinds of advice and theological advice. And not all of it's very accurate. And God is uh, under attack because of that prevailing theology. Well, if you say there's no sin, God must be, uh, we should put him on trial then. And listen to the faith of Job and one of my favorite, most inspiring Texts in all of Scripture, speaking about God to his friends, Job, having had his life devastated, says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I will surely one day defend my ways to his face, and all of this will come clean. Don't you love the faith of someone who can say, though he kick my butt, though he rip my heart out, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. When he looks blurry, I will trust in him. When he doesn't look like anything at all, I will trust in him. When I don't know what the word trust even means, I will trust in him. Conjure up, he is my only hope that's Job, and it hurts when he's saying that. And then, finally, I'll read this text from the New Testament, from 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, and again, just one verse. Paul's speaking. He's suffering, as he is in the book of Colossians. Still in prison. Uh, This is said to be the last book that Paul wrote right before he was executed. We don't know how he was, technically, how he was executed. We just know he died. He says this in this letter to Timothy, his disciple That's why I am suffering as I am. Yet, this is no cause for shame because I know in whom I have believed. And I am absolutely convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I'm suffering, but though he slay me, I will trust in him. Because when it's all said and done, I know the one in whom I have believed. And I am absolutely convinced that he's holding on to everything I've laid at his feet, everything I've invested in his cause, everything I've cherished from his heart, every single individual I have loved, even every mistake I've made. And he'll collect it all together and use it for good. And that's a vault that cannot be penetrated. Those things I've given to him cannot be stolen. I'm convinced of that, he's saying. And I introduced that this morning uh, in a study of the book of Colossians, because it seems to me that though these are outside of Colossians, obviously they're relevant to some of the things that I observed this week as I was studying and looking through the chapters assigned to me for this message. And uh, as we've already explained a few times, these are not going to be necessarily classic uh, sermons with classic sermonic structure. We're teaching through the book of Colossians. We're walking through it. We'll be a little more casual and verse by verse-ish, observing some things. We can't cover everything that's in the book. But there are things I'll share with you this morning that I've observed during the reading of this section of Colossians that begins toward the end of chapter if you want to follow along with me as I read, there's a Bible underneath the seats in front of you. And I'm in that Bible, I'm on, I'm on page 1088 in the New Testament. Uh, or if you have your Bible on your phones, go to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading at verse 24 and go through chapter 2, verse 5. 1, 24 to Colossians 2, verse 5. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? 124 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice, Paul says, in what I am suffering for you, and I will fill up my flesh, in my flesh, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, Christ's sufferings, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments to the contrary. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are, how firm your faith in Christ is. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired, totally reliable message to us. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So, I want to approach this and walk through these texts with this structure today. Looking at some words that have jumped out at me as I read this. Three words. There's much more in this text than what I'm going to present. Here's some words that come to the forefront for me. Some of them are obvious and mentioned in the text. Some of them are implied. Some of them are implied. Here's the first word that was dominant in my mind as I was navigating that text this week. The first word, and it's a word we all relate to, maybe more in this season of life than in other times, the word fear. And I get there by asking this question, why was Paul writing what he wrote? To what was Paul responding when he wrote all of this stuff that's reaffirmation of who Jesus is, reaffirmation of what the the message is, uh, a detailed analysis and explanation of what the mystery is, the naming over and over and over and over of Christ doctrinal stuff about Christ, teaching particulars about Christ, the job description of Jesus, him arguing for his own apostleship and legitimacy, if you see that in the letter. Remember, this is Paul's answering of a letter that was sent to him. So the churches in this region of modern Turkey that was then uh, uh, Asia Minor, these, this, this collection of uh, towns that were pretty prominent and and while the churches there, who, by the way, many of whom had never even seen Paul, they were started by other church planters that Paul uh, had, had ministered to, they write him a letter. So they, they hear the message, they live into it a little bit, and then things, life starts to happen and they start to have other people come in and say, well, yes, but. Uh, but however, he didn't get it quite right. There's this, or does that make sense to you? Come on, how much can you actually believe that? And doubt began to creep in, but not the healthy kind of doubt that we should have that requires faith, not thoughtful, reasonable doubt. It's this doubting of the authority of Paul, the message of Paul, the doctrines that he brought, the ministry of Jesus, the reliability of Jesus. There's there's a fear among the people to whom Paul is writing that if they don't perform well for God now, God might not perform well for them later. Somebody is saying, well, that's a nice message, but man, you have to live this way. You can't eat that. You have to worship like this. You can't dance. You can't drink. You must do this. You've got to believe this and that. Paul sort of had it right. He got you in the right room, but he didn't give you the right details. And all kinds of doubt and even fear was out there. And so Paul writes back in chapter 1, a lot of 15 through 29, if you go back and look at it later, details about Jesus and his works, a validation of his apostleship, a clarification of his message, making it clear that Jesus is certainly and exclusively means for grace, means for spiritual repair, reminding that it is God's Holy Spirit that is working in him, So that's his authority, that's where everything's coming from. These are all things that are being doubted in Asia Minor at the time, and fear has set in. Man, did we get this wrong? Maybe we're not gonna make it. Maybe we're not really pleasing God. He's responding to questions like, is Jesus really enough? That's an ancient question, that's a modern question too. Anybody besides me ask that in different forms? I don't doubt that Jesus is enough spiritually and salvifically for my salvation. I often doubt is Jesus enough for me emotionally. And if he is, why is it I keep needing everybody else's affirmation that it's not enough for me for only one to be applauding? Why is that, art? What poison is you is in you? Cuz is he really enough? They're asking questions like that. Can grace really be the driving force behind our repair. Shouldn't we also have to earn it? Shouldn't we also have to perform somehow? Grace, this undeserved gift. I just, right. I just come, all the things that I know I've done in my life and the things I've done that I cannot remember. The wounds I've caused, the mistakes I've made, the stupidity I've practiced. Right. You're telling me that I hear this message, this mysterious message of Christ in me, the hope of glory, and all I do, now all is a relative word, but what I do, it's so simple, I come to Jesus and I say, I trust in what you said. I want forgiveness. I want forgiveness without the whip across my back. I want forgiveness and the suffering you endured and the death that you experienced and the resurrection that came subsequent to that death That covers me. That's my payment. Debt settled. That can't be true. I'm afraid that that's not true. I'm afraid I must do something. I'm afraid I must perform. I've got to say, see God, see I'm worth your trouble. And Paul is writing to say, listen, he took initiative for you and because of your faith, your humility to come and say, I need you, help me. Forgive me. And that's it. In first chapter, remember, it says he then, at that point, if not before, I don't know, but at least at that point, plucks us from one kingdom, one system that needs repair, a system where you can't see, you take your next step, it's a system where the lights are turned out, and transplants us into his kingdom. And he looks at us, and he sees the cross, and he sees us by faith hiding in the cross, It's grace, and these people are asking the question, come on man, we're thinking people, that cannot possibly be enough. You should have to pay. And Paul's reminding them, actually no. Well, there's a cost and there are consequences for all the choices we make, and we can see the stains that we've caused. But God chooses to no longer see those stains. You are forgiven. Just like that, he just forgives. Yes. And there's a fear that sets in because these teachers come in afterward and say, no, there's more. And Paul reminds us there's no need to have that fear. Jesus is really dealing with us directly. We don't need an angel as the intermediary between us and Jesus. There's no need for an intermediary for the intermediary. He loves us. He's with us. He cares for us. He kisses us on the ear, he knows us, and he forgives us. Fear. And Paul is trying to remind folks, they need not have fear. Second word that comes up for me, as we work our way through this text. And you can't miss it. It's the word attached to many synonyms for that word of suffering. (laughs) Look at verse 124, verse 24, chapter one. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And Paul says, I fill up my flesh, uh, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's, Christ's affliction, this idea of suffering, and that suffering's all over the place. And then in that last section, I rejoice in my suffering for you, there's suffering, there's challenge, there's this uphill climb that's painful as we live a life moving toward Christ. We get resistance. The word here is, is like the same word used in a contest, a, a run, a, 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 the Olympics. A, you know, those of you who are crazy enough to be runners instead of just sitting and watching football like me, people tell me that there's actually a point at which you bust through the agony and you actually experience something positive. I can't even imagine that, but you tell me about it. The endorphins kick in or whatever, but you have to push through the sound barrier where the plane starts shaking and most people back off the throttle. The idea Paul's presenting here is that in this Christian life, especially as we're living it to invest in others, our children and our friends and those who depend upon us for spiritual maturity, he said you bust through the shaking and things smooth out. That's the idea. There's suffering. There's challenge. It's not always fun. But it's not just an enjoyment of suffering. Notice what he says. I rejoice in what I'm suffering. And he doesn't put a period there. I rejoice in what I'm suffering, the stuff I'm suffering for your benefit. It's the idea that our suffering benefits something. It it deepens faith. It invests in and contributes to somebody who's being presented mature and full in Christ, that's the rejoicing, the purpose of the suffering, the results, the good results of the suffering. It's kind of like parents who immigrate to a more difficult life here, a life that's more difficult for themselves than if they would have stayed where they were because they have a vision for something better for their children and grandchildren. You've heard those stories. And then he goes on in the last part of that verse, 24, to imply something that baffles us. That perhaps suffering and Christianity go together and that's normal. I, in my body, he says, am doing all I can to to experience, to fulfill the sufferings of Christ that were yet fulfilled. In my flesh, I'm doing what is still lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings. Paul's not saying Jesus was insufficient in the sufferings that he experienced. The sense of that line is this. I'm experiencing uh, sufferings that that were common to Jesus that came after Jesus. And they're going to keep coming after Jesus. And those of us who follow Jesus are gonna suffer, experience challenges that parallel the challenges and sufferings of Jesus. So when he talks about the yet unfulfilled sufferings of Jesus, it's not like, okay, we still have work to do for this grace to be you know, fully offered and fully complete. Paul's saying, hey, what he suffered, that's normal for us. The challenges Jesus had, normal for us. The evil context in which he lived the pollution over which he stumbled and the broken people he saw and the death of his friends. They're all the result of a fallen and broken world that he never intended at creation. And he experienced that and lived with it, and so do we. All sorts of applications for that, where Paul is saying, this suffering, it's a normal part of being a Christian, and Paul's doing his part. It's kind of like the sense of, okay, next batter up. And sometimes we're the next batter up, those sufferings that are left behind by Christ. It's as though Paul isn't surprised at all, even expecting and anticipating some form of hardship as a result of being identified with Christ. You can't read this section of Colossians and the following section without noticing the idea of suffering and hardship all around it. So fear, suffering, and there's one last word that I wanted to look at. It's a word we need to rediscover. It's a word called the word pronounced contending. This word contending. We struggle and we contend for people. We're not just aware of our children, our grandchildren, nieces and nephews, and our neighbors and friends, the things they're facing. We take a deep breath, we put the braces on our knees. The Bible would say we gird up our loins and we contend for them. We're not just aware of them, we contend for them. The idea that we need each other, that sounds cliche but there's nothing cliche about it when you're the one who's actually in need. There's nothing cliche about the notion that we need each other and we need somebody to contend for us. When our hands are broken and our shoes come unlaced and we cannot possibly succeed in the ring because the, the opponent is too big, when you're the one who's in that situation, when you're the one who gets the phone call from the police or whatever happens in your life, The idea that we need each other, that you can shout from the ring, someone stand with me, someone contend for me, someone hold me up. Paul is reminding us through the example of him saying, oh, this battle I fight for you so you can be presented whole and complete in Christ. And experience yourself the hope of glory. When hope and glory are the last words you can utter. I contend for you. I fight for you. I take bullets for you. We need each other. Can I get an amen to that? We need each other. We need each other in times of celebration because there are seasons to celebrate. And there are seasons to mourn. And friends, we need each other then. Not just being aware, but those who are strong, contending, for the sister or brother who doesn't feel so strong. That, and not all of the definitions that identify her greatest weaknesses and mistakes, that is the church. It's a people who say, to the enemy of God and the destroyer of hope. You may try to get through to them, but you have to come through us to do it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the word of God and the church of Christ. When the church actually says we're done defending, now we're contending. The gates can't hold up. Contending. Look at that word, in one twenty-nine and 2.1 especially. To this end, I strenuously, this content, with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And then in one, the same word. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and all of those who haven't seen me personally contending 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 it's the word struggle it's a word from it's agonos in greek the word from which we derived our term what you can hear it agony i want you to know how fiercely i agonize for you it's an uphill climb and i climb it i climb it in prayer i climb it in teaching i climb it in travel i climb it in mourning for you i I agonize for you, and it's a positive term. Other places that this is translated to get some idea of the field of meaning for the word in Philippians 1 is translated conflict. In 1 Thessalonians 2, it's translated opposition or conflict or struggle. 1 Timothy 6, in that I fight the good fight text, that's the same word. It's both noun and object in that translation. And again, in, first, in 2 Timothy 4, I fight the good fight. And in Hebrews 12, that race we run, that contest, same word. It's the idea of this great competition that we're having. Paul's ministry goal is introduced by surrounded by company words of suffering. There's suffering all throughout this text. Suffering, challenge, contest, struggle, all in a positive context. And it's written to the Colossians by a man who is riding from prison under house arrest not long before he's executed for challenging and seeking to undo just about every evil system known to his world at the time. We push through the pain and we wrestle our way to the goal when our friends and colleagues in our world needs help, we contend for each other. So what's the point? Here's some things that I think can be the point. First, no doubt, a decision on our part to follow Jesus is a part of our salvation. I don't mean to minimize that at all. But it's not the essence of our salvation, and American evangelicalism has gotten that mixed up. We think the essence of the grace that causes us to be plucked is this prayer we prayed. The prayer we pray to choose to follow Christ is absolutely critical. A decision needs to be made, don't get me wrong. But the theological essence of our salvation is the cross and the work Christ did on the cross. That's the center of our salvation. That's our ultimate leaning post. It's what I told one of my sons the other day in a theological conversation during a haircut. We don't trust in our own ability to hold on to Jesus. We trust in the ability of Jesus to hold on to us. I think that's part of the point of what Paul is making. Second, we must reject without reservation the notion that Christianity can ex- true Christianity can exist without pain and struggle and suffering. I categorically deny that. I might be wrong, but I don't think so. When God keeps us in his hands, he apparently does not automatically keep us from the consequences of an evil and broken and fallen world. We are not in a cocoon. We are in among human beings who suffer things. The text says that the rain falls, the rain is a good thing, falls on the just and the unjust. It nourishes everybody's fields at the same time. But apparently so does the hail. And we sure know that. We don't need to look any further than the global news of the last few weeks and even our own congregation's news of the last few weeks. Fallen Christ is a lot like marriage or child raising. It includes imaginable highs and unthinkable lows. That's part of the point. Third, we must accept without reservation the notion that we've got to contend for each other, that we need each other, that in a healthy way, there needs to be almost a spiritual enmeshment of the body. Fight for each other in the quest for Christ-centered spiritual wholeness when the unthinkable happens, and our faith is severely tested.
1: Thanks, Greg. So in Colossians, we get to take a really hard theological look at some really hard theological truths. Um, But this last point is not really a theological, oh, that's interesting, it's a real life, knee to knee, eyeball to eyeball, sort of thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, right, Jesus says that the rain and the storms come to everybody. I always thought if I knew and loved Jesus and did the right thing, the storms and rains don't come, but the truth is storms and rain come to everybody. People who love God and do the right thing, people who hate God and do the awful thing, the storms come. And the difference is the person whose house is built on the sand, who gets rocked and swept away, or those whose lives are built on Christ Who's the rock? And those houses stand. And when I think of the word contending, just this Tuesday in our staff meeting, we, we studied this passage scripture and we all went around and every single person on our staff, we contend for you. We contend for each other. And it's not a theological term, it's a battle. And I imagine it as standing on the rock and my house is sustaining the the rains and the wind and your house is next to mine on the sand, not yours because you're incredible Christians, but some people's houses are on the sand and we're experiencing the same wind, wind and rain and this house is starting to crumble and contending is reaching over and grabbing onto this house and holding it with all of my might, with all the might that Christ gives me onto this house so it doesn't crumble. But sometimes the storms are so heavy, like hurricanes in the Midwest, where even on the strong foundation, the whole house just gets swept away. And I'm not gonna lie, I feel like for me, my house is on the rock. But there are storms that are too big for me. And so when we say we ask for you to contend, we're not saying, hey, pray for that person. That's great, we're asking that you would put on your boxing gloves, and that you would fight. You would contend for each other. You would contend for us. Our staff, we bleed for our church, for our community, and for our world. But we need you to not just be passive church people and go, that's great. But we need you to contend for us and for each other. That is really what church is. This couple hours on a Sunday morning is beautiful and great but the 45 other hours of work and the whole life outside this time is where the contending happens. And I love this passage of Paul where he says, I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works within me. And we can only contend if we are rooted in Christ. And so what we're gonna do, I'm gonna invite the band up, is we're gonna spend the rest of our morning contending. And it starts with worship. It starts with making sure that our house is firmly planted on, on the rock, that we are rooted in Christ and it has Christ's power in us, sustaining us, empowering us, healing us, comforting us. And as we worship, as our eyes are fixed on Christ, as he is the one that proclaims, then we'll spend some time spiritually wrestling in prayer for each other, for our church, and for the world. So I'm going to ask that you would stand and that you'd be willing to spend the rest of our church time together contending for me, for one another, for those people in our midst who are just crushed in our world, who are devastated, let's contend.